welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, shadow citizens. Shadow citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh and Rob Bosell. Hey, thank you so much for coming to our show today. Today is going to be awesome, I hope. We're supposed to have a guest with us, G. Edwin Griffin, that many of you have probably heard of, but we're trying to track him down, so we'll let let that happen. But right now, I want to introduce you to my co-host, Rob Ocell. Rob, are you here with us? Yes, I am. Hello, Rachel. Hi. Oh, gosh. <laughs> So how's it going, Rob? What's going on? <laughs> well, like you say, we're trying to track down our guest, so I hope he can. I've been so looking forward to this because I read The Creature from Jekyll Island back when I was getting into the uh, the Ron Paul revolution. And so it was a, you know, a whole I – mean, it's a great book. I mean, even uh, Glenn Beck you know, said, you have to read this book. <laughs> and right, right. Not, not no, I know. And most people, I don't know if they know his name. I, I know his face. He reminds me of a little, um, like a little friendly troll, like a little, <laughs> like, you know, like one of those garden gnomes. He reminds me of that. So when you, you switch going through the internet and you're looking for him, G. Edward Griffin, you will see this guy and you'll say, Oh, I know who that guy is because he showed up in all these different things. He's a writer. He's a documentary film producer and founder of Freedom Force International. He's listed in Who's Who in America. He is a well known, he's very well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics, and presenting them in clear terms. Um, he has dealt with such really diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history. He's really famous for federal, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, which is like what I'm really excited to talk about. Um, terrorism, international subversion, and the history of taxation. U.S. foreign policy and the science and politics of cancer therapy and the Supreme Court and the United Nations. So this guy, he's just like really into historically documenting and fact checking and he communicates and very well on some of these things. And to, I really hope that he's here today. So. Yeah, I hope we didn't get the time zones mixed up because yeah. that happens to us all the time too. So no, I told him I'm very specific on Pacific. Yeah, so hopefully he'll be here very, very soon. If not, then we'll just go on with our daily routine here. But, um, well, we should probably talk about what's going on. If, um, well, we can talk about our next show, which we had to uh, pre-record. Oh, 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 that next show is going to be out of control, out of control. We're talking next week. Everybody's going to hear about him. Um, we're, talk- we- we're talking to the Liberty Survivors next week. Um, okay, we've got our guest, Rachel. So, uh, yeah, hello, uh, Mr. Griffin, or can I call you Ed? Uh, well, yeah, except my uh, my Skype system is ringing, ringing. Oh, there Uh-oh. we it finally stopped. There, I think uh, it stopped ringing. So, can you oh. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Mr. Griffin. Thank you so much. Thank you for showing up. We're so happy to have you. We're really excited to talk about this Red Pill Expo you got going on. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk about it, too. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's coming up. It's June, what, 23rd? 
Oh yeah, it's only yeah, yeah it's like 28 days or something, 25 days now. It's incredibly close. And it's in Bozeman, Montana. Bozeman, Montana. Yeah. Okay. Well, All right. I already gave a background about who you are, kind of a bio about who you are. But what made you decide you wanted to throw this conference? This is you throwing this this big expo, this big conference in the middle of almost nowhere. (laughs) Well, there are a couple of uh, statements there that need clarification. It's it's not me at all. It was my idea. I'll take take responsibility for that. But, uh, boy, we've got a whole team of uh, great workers and dedicated people making it happen. So uh, it's a big, you know, big step between having an idea for a conference of this size and actually putting it on. So anyway, uh, that was the one thing. And uh, Bozeman is um, generally perceived as being nowhere. But, you know, it's kind of a thriving little community. Uh, It has a big college there. And uh, has 50 hotels or something like that. Oh, it's, my uh, gosh. It has 50 hotels. It has, What's there yeah, that it has, people want to go to Bozeman, well, I, as ignorant as I am? <laughs> well, no, a lot of people have that view, including myself at one time. Uh, well, the university's there. And, of course, it's it's kind of a gateway to big sky country. Mm-hmm. It's really a great um, – it, it's a vacation place in the summertime, of course. And uh, so yeah, International Airport is there. Yeah, you okay. can come in from from overseas and land in Bozeman, Montana. So it's not as much of a hickey little town as you might think. Montana is beautiful. I have been to Montana, and it is beautiful. Um, oh yeah, just gorgeous. Now and, you and said you have, have awesome guests lined up, and I saw oh, on the yeah. website, the Red Pill Expo website, you do have awesome guests. In fact, you have Cynthia McKinney coming, and how you even well, she's going to be a video conference kind of thing. But that's yeah. incredible that you even got in touch with her. That woman's hard to get. Yeah, she's in Bangladesh right now. She's that teaching makes... there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What's she going to so, talk about specifically? Well, you know, uh, it remains to be seen, but we have a pretty good idea. Here's the background on that. Uh, since I guess we have a little time, I can afford to, the luxury of, of giving some background on these things like this. Um I became aware of Cynthia McKinney when she was a congresswoman, and um, this was a couple of years ago. I was uh, involved in the production of a documentary film about uh, the threat to the power grid that was posed by uh, coronal mass uh, ejections, CMEs. Uh, people refer to them generally as solar flares, right? Uh, solar storms and that kind of thing. And without going too deeply into that background, the, the, the story on that is that uh, the Earth is subjected to very intense solar storms about every 150 years and super intense uh, every couple of thousand years. So uh, modern times, you know, it doesn't stretch back that far. And the last one that we know about that was really recorded and measured was um, about 155 years ago called um, – the Carrington event, yes. and it was so strong that it uh, it blew the telephone, the telegraph wires. We didn't have telephones in those days. We certainly didn't have high tension power lines. All of these wires stretching around the earth like we do today, but we did have telegraph lines, and they were acting as an antenna, and they picked up the energy, the electromagnetic energy from the solar uh, event, 
and it, it blew the transformers. It, it set fire to the tra- to the telegraph shacks, and it was it burned down some telephone poles. It was a, really quite an event. Well, that was 155 years ago, and statistically, we're overdue now mm-hmm. for another one that strong or stronger. There's evidence in the Earth's crust. They, I don't know how they measure these things, but they're pretty sure that we've had them much stronger than that, perhaps a thousand times stronger than that uh, in the Earth's history. But stronger or not, that is strong enough to completely blow out all of the um, uh, the transformers at the power stations that, that service the grid in any civilized country. And I'm talking about the big ones, not the ones on the top of your telephone poles, but the ones that are about the size of the house. Right. And all of the power generators have those. And uh, if the energy is picked up from a solar flare of that magnitude and backs down coming in the wrong direction, the energy is supposed to go away from the transformers. But if it starts coming into them from this uh, kind of an event, there's no doubt that these uh, transformers will blow up. They'll burn up, blow up, goodbye. And it takes um, years to replace one. And if you had a whole bunch of them to replace at once, and you didn't have any factories running because they didn't have power to make transformers, uh, you, you're looking at a scenario that is really grim. You're looking at no power potentially for 20 years. Well, well that, yeah, that is a, it's an appalling scenario, but it is scientifically sound. Nobody wants to talk about it. Oh, you're an extremist, you're an alarmist, so forth. So they don't want to talk about it. So that's the background. We were doing a documentary film about this threat. And I found that the only person in Congress talking about that was Cynthia McKinney. So I was very interested. Yeah, she was taking a stand on it. And uh, then I found what her voting record was. Well, it turns out that she was pretty far on the left and uh, what we would call in our circles a collectivist. It wants big government for this, that and everything. I said, oh, too bad. She's, uh, She's got this figured out. Uh, she's a good woman. She's got it all figured out for the solar flares. Excuse me, I'm going to unplug this thing. I meant, meant to do that before. Um, she had that figured out, but she has the politics a little bit screwed up, at least in my mind. So I thought, well, I can't really use her for a lot. So I put it aside. And then fast forward to a, a few months ago, I got a call from Dan Happel, who was on our board of directors at Freedom Force, which is the organization that's sponsoring this Red Pill Expo. And he said, uh, Ed, guess who I just talked to? I said, well, of course, I didn't know. Who's that? Uh, he said, Cynthia McKinney. And she said to say hello. <laughs> said, she said to say hello to me. I've never met her. And he said, yeah, I know, but she's read your book, A Creature from Jekyll Island. And she really likes it. And she's a fan. I said, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. So uh, we got to talking. And it turns out that Cynthia has undergone quite uh, an epiphany politically. She's uh, changed her views drastically from where she was several years ago. And now she's talking about uh, the principles of limited government, the principles of individualism as opposed to collectivism. And uh, she has made a complete transformation. It's really a phenomenon. So... um, I uh, thought, let's talk to Cynthia. Let's really talk to Cynthia and see if she's if she feels comfortable talking to a, or with a lot of people like us who are calling uh, for more individual action. And, and we don't think that government is the solution. We think it's generally the problem. And that's our mindset. Would she feel comfortable with us? Well, it turns out she feels very comfortable with us now. Good. And remember, she was a candidate for the Green Party for president. Yeah. Yeah. So this this is a huge swing. So what is she going to talk about? 
we agreed that she's going to talk about the illusion of the left-right paradigm. Yay! Okay. <laughs> so, and who is better qualified than she? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm I looking- got... Uh- I got to speak with her uh, uh, oh, probably five years ago. She was at a local event, uh, and she, yeah, you could tell the transformation, you know, ha- was taking place, you know, because, uh, yeah, from what I had seen of her earlier days when she was in c- Congress and that, yeah, she was pretty far left. But now I understand that even Dennis Kucinich is kind of moving over towards, you know, the center and that. So I... Cynthia's most famous for that clip where she's grilling Rumsfeld uh, about, you know, what happened, you know, at the Pentagon and then also uh, how come we're doing business with, you know, with major corporations that are uh, trafficking in uh, slavery, children and that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she's she's got a lot of courage. She 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 goes where. Um, large, powerful men fear to tread. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> she's she's got courage. She does. She's uh, she'll be an excellent speaker. I'd I'd love to make it out there. And I would it, too. Yeah. Yeah. How much? Well, I, I just when you mentioned speakers, I brought up our little uh, our website, and of course the first name there is Robert Kiyosaki, which okay. is known to a lot of people. He's how many millions and millions of copies of his book have been sold? I don't know, but uh, his books, I should say. But it all started with his book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And uh, it was his personal story, as you probably know. Uh, he had a real father, and then he had a mentor that he considered as his uh, his, his teacher father. And, and one father was rich, and one was poor. And his real father was the poor one, and he was a college professor and at Hawaii University. And the rich one never went to school or never graduated, but he went to the School of Hard Knocks and learned about money. And he learned that, you know, the secrets of the rich, as they like to say. So the rich dad taught Robert Kiyosaki the secrets of money that they don't teach in school and that even the professor at the university didn't know anything about. So that was the premise of his book, and it caught on like wildfire, and rightfully so. You know, uh, Robert Kiyosaki has one great little line that catches everyone's attention. He says, uh, stop working for money. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, huh? What? Wait a minute. He says, don't work for money. Huh? What are you talking about? And then he says, let money work for you. Oh, I get it. I see. Uh-huh. So that's that's Robert. You know, he has a way of, of taking complex ideas and reducing them into sort of startling little summary statements like that. So Robert's going to be there. And uh, I know that, you know, that's going to be quite a treat to, to uh, hear him talk. That will be. You know, who else is like your one of your superstars that are there? The health ranger. Mike Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Everybody loves him, that's for sure. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, there you talk about a transition. I've um, I've watched Mike uh, make a, maybe not as bizarre or complete a transition as Cynthia McKinney, but similar. Because when I first met Mike years ago, he was the health ranger, you know, and that was it. And he was really good. He understood the the battle between um, orthodox medicine and natural health. He understood that. The, the medical profession had sort of fallen captive to the pharmaceutical industry that wasn't particularly interested in curing anything. They just right. wanted to keep people alive and on drugs every day for the rest of their lives because that was a, you know, it was a good trip to the bank. Um, so Mike was aware of that, and uh, we produced a documentary some years ago where I interviewed him 
Well, he was all about health, 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 and that was what we wanted. But um, I've watched him on his website since then gradually uh, reach out and embrace political elements. And it didn't take long before he was uh, sounding like we were. <laughs> you know, he got the idea that, hey, the problem uh, really uh, is in coercion. It's in the fact that large corporations like pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and armament makers and uh, all kinds of things like that, they can have a lot of sp- money to spend. So they go to Congress and they buy up congressmen. And then they get laws passed that favor their industry at the expense of everyone else. Now we're in the political arena. And when he discovered that was the cause of the of the corruption in the health industry, he saw it everywhere. You know, that's what happens to all of us. It's like that first crack is hard. But after that, you see cracks all over the place. Yeah. So now so now Mike is very much on the side of individualism and uh, uh, seeing that. The government should be our servant, and we should not be the servant of government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I have a question. I, it's kind of got passed over. Does this cost money to attend? This oh, yeah, it, it does. Yeah, uh, it does. It's not free, although it's the cheapest one I've seen around. And by the way, the only reason that we can do this is because all of these great speakers, Robert Kiyosaki charges $150,000 for an appearance. Oh, He's, wow. That's, he, that's the guy with the rich dad. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. That's yeah. awesome. We've got another, now Joe Salatin, we'll come back to him later. He's really famous. People love this guy. He's a sort of a, a cowboy philosopher and he charges six and seven thousand dollars. All of these people charge thousands of dollars. Lord Moncton is coming from the UK. You can't get him any place for less than. Yeah, that blew my eight. mind to see him there. Wow. Yeah. And now the the kicker is all of these speakers are donating their time. Wow. Now that means because they, it's important. That is incredible because it, you know what it tells me? It tells me that these people really have a mission and it's not just to make money. They have a mission. They really want to change the world. They want to correct an evil. And that's why we have so many of these fantastic people and we're not paying them a dime. Okay, we most of them or half of them, let's say, we're paying for their travel to get here. That's it. Uh, and half of them are paying for their own travel even. So it's amazing. Uh, so what about if somebody's listening to this show right now and they're like, wow, I need to get out there. How much does it cost to go to this oh, event? Yeah, I almost dropped it. Let me fast forward here. Uh, the rates went up a couple of weeks ago. Come on, where are they? Oh, hang in there. Oh, we will. Yeah. Register. <laughs> We're Regist- just thrilled to have you on. We can't <laughs> believe it. I'm just thrilled because when I very first got involved with the Ron Paul people, uh-huh. I everybody was talking about this Creature from Jekyll Island book. And I was like, this sounds like the corniest book I ever heard. But then when I figured out what Jekyll Island was, where the Federal Reserve was born. I was like, this is the perfect title. <laughs> so, yeah, and I read that book. And that book and um, History of Money and Banking in the United States by Murray Rothbard are two books that I'm really proud that I read. And I yeah. probably read them again sometime. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad you liked uh, the yeah. creature. Uh, yeah. Okay, I finally found the prices. Uh, they're outrageous. Uh, actually, pretty low. Uh, the basic registration at present is $297. That's okay. All. And that includes a couple of meals. It includes uh, snacks and all that sort of thing. But most of all, it includes all of these wonderful presentations of these people. Right, right. Well, yeah, and it's two days. 
And it's two days, yeah, it's yeah, packed. It's and uh, th- for a companion, if you're coming as a couple, the second person is only 175. Yeah, it'd be a nice discount. Students, oh. students, 97. So that's it. Mm-hmm. It's all there on the website. The website, by the way, is uh, redpillexpo.net. Redpillexpo.net. Do you think a lot of your uh, your speakers feel kind of like a sense of urgency? Uh, uh, you know that maybe we don't have a whole lot of time left. If, if it, I, I mean, we've been hearing about the collapse of uh, you know this monetary system for you know quite some time now, but uh, it, it you know somehow they manage to keep keep going. You know to keep it and going. Bubble, so and the bubble keeps expanding. Well, to answer your question, uh, do a lot of our speakers feel that way? Absolutely not. All of them feel that way. They all feel that way. So they all have this sense of urgency that we don't have much time left. Yes, that's why we're doing this. We, right. have, we have to get the word out. People are – what you know, our slogan is um, because you know something is wrong. Red Pill Expo. Why? Because you know something is wrong. And that's it. Everybody, almost everyone, knows that there's something really wrong with our system. It's going haywire. It was going so beautifully for for decades, and and we were in the best place in the world, and all of a sudden the wheels are coming off. Something is wrong, and unfortunately, because of one of the things that's wrong is that the media and the educational system is in the hands of the wrong people. Because of that, it's hard for the rest of us to get information about what is happening. Because everything is twisted. It's all filtered. You know, the good guys are always presented as the bad guys and vice versa and so forth. So it's hard to get information out. And without that, we're lost. So um, we thought that the red pill analogy was perfect for what we're trying to do. We want people to take their red pill and, and get out of the illusion, break free from the matrix and see life as it really is. It's not what we think, folks. It's different. And so that's why we chose the red pill as our, our theme. And I think it's the ideal framework to present every one of these concepts because all of these speakers are here to tell us that the way we have thought life was in, in their particular area of expertise, it's not that way. It's usually just the opposite of what we think. It's funny you bring that up because it is kind of when you're kind of stumbling down, quote unquote, the rabbit hole. There's one trigger event that gets you to open your eyes, like opens that first crack. And like you said, you start seeing cracks everywhere. And then all of a sudden you're all the way down. It it seems like other people, it's hard to relate to other people because they're not, they're not seeing the stuff that you're seeing anymore. And that you get to the point where you just want to force a red pill on these other people. And how do you, how would you recommend reaching out to people that haven't quite made the leap yet that what's going on with our healthcare system, what's going on with our money, what's going on basically on the whole planet with the money system that we have. How do you make the leap? Because people that are working really hard and doing what they're supposed to be doing, they, of course, they feel the pinch, but it's still working for them. Why would they, why would they question anything? How would you recommend somebody break into somebody like that? I wish I had a good answer for that, um, but there are a couple of components to that issue that I'd like to address. Uh, sometimes that that sometimes that question is raised in a different way. It's like, well, you know, what can the average person do uh, to protect themselves? What can the average person do 
to avoid this uh, coming train wreck, train wreck, and so forth. And my answer to that is, well, the average person can't do anything about it. So the trick is stop being average. If we want to come out ahead on this game, we have to stop being average and being like everyone else. We have to start thinking as individuals and not averages. We have to break free of this uh, this terrible uh, stultifying effect of doing what everybody else does and thinking what everybody else does. Literally, that is the matrix. That is real matrix is that we have to we feel more comfortable if we're in a crowd and if we're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. If that whole crowd is running for the cliff and and, uh, we know that uh, at the other end of the crowd, they're falling off the cliff, but everybody's moving that way. So we better go that way, too. You know, that is the lemming mentality. Um, We have to stop being average. We have to stop being lemmings and we have to be to break free of that that tendency is part of our human nature. But that still doesn't answer your question. Uh, so what we have to do is look for the the people who are capable of that. And I think one of the hardest things for me to to accept over the years in this issue is that we cannot reach everyone. We cannot actually even reach the majority. Mm-hmm. And that used to be a very depressing thought to me because I thought, well, you know, majority rules, right? We live in a democracy where, you know, the majority determines. So if we can't reach the majority, we lose. And then after I broke free from the matrix and I realized the way life really was, it wasn't that way at all. The majority never determines anything. History is always written by the few, very few people, almost always less than 3% and usually less than 1% of the population determines what society is going to do. And so those are the people we have to find and reach. Those are the people who are the leaders. Those are the people who are the thought uh, creators. Those are the those are the ones that are, at are at the heads of organizations that people join and follow. You know, they're the they're the sometimes they're hidden people. Like the who are the people that run the Republican Party? Who are the people that actually run the Democratic Party? We don't know who they are, but they're some of the most powerful people in the world. And when they make a decision. All the, the loyal Republicans and all the loyal Democrats just sort of fall in line. Uh, who are the people that are running some of these corporations, these giant international corporations? Well, some of them are known to us. They get into the news. But most of them, we never heard of them. You see, and, and you go all the way down the line, labor unions, church organizations, uh, universities, uh, uh, tax-exempt foundations, um, government agencies, all of these things. There's a, a pyramidal structure in society, and you don't have to reach the majority. In fact, that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, what you need to do is find that intellectual, determined, uh, driven, principled minority who are willing to to uh, provide leadership and then the guy next door chewing gum and mowing his grass is going to follow them so this is kind of this is a, probably a good example because uh, it's a good example of taking the red pill I should say because it was hard for me to realize that that's the way life really works I didn't want it to be that way 
I thought it would be much better, you know, theoretically, if we could all just vote on everything and there would be enough intelligence and uh, purity of motive at the common person's level that somehow the more people we got involved, the better it would be. When in fact, it's just the other way around. The more people that are involved in most cases means that you're not going to accomplish anything. You've got to have leadership. You've got to have thought leaders, people that really know, and people who have, in our case, people who have principles. So we wind up in the real world today where it's not, uh, it's not a question of shall there be an elite group? The question is, of course, there will always be an elite group. But who are the elite going to be? Are they going to be a group of people who are power hungry, that want to control the lives of everyone else, the collectivists, who think there ought to be rule at the top and everybody has to follow at the bottom like slaves because it's supposedly in their best interest? But meanwhile, we have ironclad leadership at the top and dictators and telling us this, that, and thing. That's one possibility. Or do we want the elite to be people like our founding fathers who deliberately rejected that kind of power and created a constitution, sort of a beta model, Pretty good for a first try that, that would restrict all that power and deny people the ability to control the personal lives of everyone else. I think that's the kind of elite we want. That's the kind of an elite that created America. And that's the kind we're trying to reinstitute. So now we get back to the question, how do we get people to see through this? The first thing we have to do is find that one to three percent of the population whose eyes and minds are open. The kind of people who are interested and want to do something. The kind of people that we have on our program, for example, that are, are giving uh, of their time, their talent, big chunks of their life. They're giving up huge opportunities to make money in most cases. And they're coming here for nothing. Why? Because they've got that, that fire in the belly. Those are the people we need to find. Those that have fire in the belly, they want to do something about it. And then it doesn't make too much difference. They'll find their own crack. All we got to do is just show them some facts, this, that, and the other thing, and they'll say, aha, I get it over here, and ah, I see it over there. They will do it. So, uh, I don't know, I've wandered a little bit from your question. It would have been <laughs> That's okay. That's okay, <laughs> because uh, you brought up some interesting points. Now, this, these leader people, to find these leader people, is this going to coexist? I'm trying to get in my mind what's going on. Is this going to coexist while this system that we've got is collapsing? And then we're going to grow this new one, this new with these this new group of people that we want to encourage and get them to be in leadership positions. And does this mean we still stick with the Constitution or are we because you said that was a good first try? Are we going to try to do this, rewrite something or how how is this? Is this going to come down violent? I wish I didn't. I wish I uh, I knew the answer. Uh, I wish I didn't have to say I don't know. Um, but it's clear that it could go either way. Well, it's clear that it seems to be going one way. I guess that's the clear part. It's heading to violence. Yeah. Uh, we can see that daily now. Um, that's another topic. Maybe we should come back to that. Even that is sort of an illusion. And I'll, I'll give you a clue on that, because when you look at the, the number of people involved in all the violence, it's it's very, very, very small. But they're extremely organized by, well organized by that 1% who I was just talking about. They're funded and organized and trained by that 1% and they create the illusion of a mass movement. Okay? So that's one of the illusions that we need to be aware of. 
that all this um, dissent and violence that we see on television every day, it, it appears to be much larger than it really is. But uh, anyway, we'll come back to that. Yeah, that's a good thing. We could we have to come back to that. We've got two hours. We're at the um, six. We're at the half the bottom of the hour right now. So mm-hmm. we're going to um, talk to you for some some time. So we'll be able to hit on that for sure. OK, um, so keep going. Uh, okay, so anyway, b- back to where is it headed? I don't really know, but I do know that in either case, we, if we're going to come out the other end, we have to have leadership in position. We, and uh, whether the whole thing collapses and we build from the ground up, and God help us if that's if that's the scenario we're heading for, uh, or whether we are able to uh, peacefully and uh, and democratically, if I may use that word. Um, parliament using parliamentary means if we can redirect the uh, the form and the purpose of uh, our governments that would be the better way because uh, well for obvious reason who, who wants bloodshed and violence but either way it's going to take leadership and that's what we're trying to build so I we're not trying to pretend that we know the answer to your question but we're trying to prepare for whatever direction it it goes mm-hmm. I think part of the problem is, you know, you talk about the matrix and, uh, and, you know, it's, everybody is trying to maintain the status quo. And I'm going to go to a very, very elementary level here. Uh, back when I was, you know, this is like 35, 40 years ago, I had a, a job with the, the park rec department and, you know, we kept the ball diamonds, uh, clean for, uh, groomed for the softball games. And after it would rain, there'd be little puddles out in the softball diamond and they, they gave me a broom and told me to go sweep the water out of the puddles. And I did that once or twice and I thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. And so I, I took a rake out there and raked around it and pulled the gravel back into the puddle, you know, so it displaced the water. And, you know, and I thought this was a great idea. This will work well. I told you to sweep the water out of the puddle. Now, damn it. You know, and so I, yeah, I don't know. I should go find out if to this day if they're still sweeping the water out of the puddles. But it, you know, it, it's this idea of, you know, maintaining the, uh, the status quo because this is what the way we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it. So, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, I think that probably happens at more levels. It seems like, you know, it happens in the fa- on the factory floor. It happens a lot of places. You know, if you're not the guy that's in charge and calling the shots, you better do what he says and not come up with a better idea. So I don't know if you want to comment on any of that or if I just. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. And I think that's an example of that uh, the 1% versus the 99%. The one percent are making the decisions and the other 99 have to follow those uh, directives. And if they step out of line, they're in trouble. So uh, if you're content with that, uh, you can get by. You, you've got a job. If you're not content with that, uh, you get fired. And uh, then you decide to go into business for yourself and be your own boss. And now you're the one percent. That's the way to do it. <laughs> you can make it all work. It's Yeah, that's the way it goes. And some people can do that. Some people can't. Some people don't want to do that because it's it's risky. You've got to work for yourself or create your own business. You could fail. You could lose all your savings. Uh, you could fail and make a disgrace of yourself. Um, you've got a family to support. You can't afford to take risks. All those things, you know. So that I'm not I'm not trying to say that. 
the 99% are stupid or anything like that. I'm not trying to denigrate them in any way. Uh, but I'm trying to say that the way life really is, is that 1% will be making the decisions and the other 99% will be following them. Now, one of the names, you know, that, you know, we, well, we keep hearing about the Rockefellers and, you know, or the Rothschilds as being at the top of this, uh, financial structure, uh, and do you think there it goes above them, you know, it, because they're in the news and people talk about them as being at the, you know, at the top of everything? Uh, do you think there's a, a, a ruling elite kind of above them, or is this all just, you know, people trying to explain something that they can't uh, comprehend? Well, a couple of things come to mind on that one. I think that when you mention people like the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, um, that is. Sorry. Can you say those names again? Because it got buzzed out on my end. Oh, uh, the, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, those names, in in my view, do not come up in the news very much, uh, except in in innocuous ways, like Rockefeller died or something like that, but not uh, Rockefeller. Uh, made a decision uh, that just caused the death of three million people. You don't get those kind of stories. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and that I'm just making that up because the more it seems like the more important or the more serious the news is about these people, uh, the less likely it is that you're going to hear about it uh, on the news. But still, that's uh, the main point is that who is running the show? I don't really know. Again, I, I, I'm so embarrassed to have to say that, but I, I don't know, and I don't, uh, I don't think any very many people do. I suspect that those two names are probably in the list, the short list, the very short list. There are probably others. Um, you go take a look at the attendees of the uh, of the Bilderberger Group, for example, and I think that probably in that group you're going to find um, a very high concentration of the either the families or the the institutions or their representatives uh, are going to be in that room uh, at one time. So I, whatever it is, and I don't know what the list is, I, they're probably around 300. That that number keeps coming up over and over again by scholars who have studied this thing. They talk about the rule of 300. It sounds about right to me. Uh, it doesn't make any difference, and that's my point, who they are, although we're curious as all get out, because no matter who they are, uh, what are we going to do with that information? We can't go say, okay, you're the bad guy, and we get rid of them somehow, because they'll be replaced by somebody else standing in the wings, waiting just to step into the vacuum. It's what they are. And by that, I mean it's what they believe. That's the important thing, or two things. What they believe, and the other thing is the mechanisms of control that we have allowed them to have. What they believe is a thing called collectivism. They all believe that the group is more important than the individual, that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number, and that they shall represent the people, that they somehow will be the people's choice through the elective process. Or through some other process. Sometimes in, in some parts of the world they say, well, God chose me. I'm a representative of God. We have theocracies uh, in the Middle East, for example. But uh, whatever the choice is, there's always somebody that represents uh, some higher authority, whether it's God or the higher authority in the Western world is considered to be 
the people. So uh, then you have one man or a party that represents God or represents the people. And it's a dictatorship no matter which way you look at it. So and as long as the people actually think that's a good idea, uh, we're in real serious trouble. You look in the parts of the world where theocracy is uh, common, the people are quite content with that. They think they really believe. They really believe that um, they're serving people who are the representatives of, of God himself. And in the Western world, it's not much different, except instead of being God, they really believe that these people in Congress and the Senate and the various legislative bodies really represent the will of the people, that they really care about the people, that they really listen to the people, and that the people really have a means of, of uh, determining and selecting their own candidates and putting into office the people that they really want. They are, as long as the people of the world are living in the matrix and really believe this myth, this illusion, there is nothing we can do to change it. So it doesn't make any difference what the names of those individuals are that are in these positions. They're going to die, and when they die, they'll be replaced by someone else in that same position of representing God or representing the people. So it just goes on and on and on. So the solution is, yes, let's find out who they are. I'm curious to know. But in the meantime, let's tackle this, this ideology where, where the people at large actually fall for this myth, for this great lie. And once they break out of that matrix, then this whole thing crumbles. The people are still there, but we will not give them the power of the state, the legalized use of force, the, the legalized use to, to come and take us out of our homes and throw us in prison or execute us. And it's all legal because it's written in the law. And it's because we believe that that law represents God or represents the people. We have to change that. And that's what uh, Freedom Force is all about, coming to a realization of what those principles are and what the real authority is. And that, of course, takes us back to the Red Pill Expo. Because the Red Pill Expo is sponsored by Freedom Force International. And one of the secondary purposes of this whole conference is to bring together this potentially this 1% of the population. And then to get them thinking about the very things we're talking about now. And realizing that there is a better way than theocracy, even better than democracy. I'm glad you said that. Now, are we talking about a type of anarchy? Anarchy with the lowercase a? Well, I love that that topic. Uh, Some people would be talking about that. Uh, I'm not, merely because I have a different definition of the word. Mm -hmm. But as as you know, I can tell by the way you made the distinction between the capital A and the lowercase a, anarchy, that there are two really uh, optional definitions. Uh, One, the one, the more classic definition that most people think of, is uh, anarchy meaning no authority, no recognized authority, no government of any kind, no uh, no state. Um, everybody's just without authority. Uh, just they protect themselves. They deal deal with each other without any coercion of law of any kind. Um, most people reject that, of course, because for obvious reasons. We can come back to that later. But most people reject it because they think that under such a condition. You're not really free because the person with the biggest fist or the biggest weapon, the biggest club, the biggest atomic bomb or whatever it is, is going to rule whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
So we come to the other anarchy, uh, which is really um, it's hard to describe, but it, but it's perhaps another another word for laissez-faire. In other words, the the lowercase a anarchists speak of not wanting government. And um, now, what does that mean to them? What does government mean to them? What does government mean to you? What does government mean to the people listening to this program? So let's deal with that since we have time and we're going to be chewing it up <laughs> pretty yeah. rapidly. Sure do. Sure do. <laughs> let's deal with it. What is government? Well, um, well, what is the purpose of a government? The word tells us purpose of a government is to govern. Uh-huh. Well, does anybody want to be governed? I don't think so. So why do we ask for a government and we're asking to be governed and we're not thinking about what that word really means? We don't want to be governed. What we want the state to do, I think, most of us, we want them to it to protect us. That was the function of the American Republic when it was first drafted a couple of hundred years ago. It was not to govern us, although I think one of the mistakes our founding fathers made, and as I said, I thought they were did a great job for a beta model, but one of the mistakes is they used the word government. They said, what kind of a government shall we have? They just borrowed the word from the old world. In reality, I think they should have said, let us create a protectorate, because that's what they did. They created a state along a form, not to govern people, but to protect them. And in the in the uh, preamble, Declaration of in, uh, Independence, it says, you know, the purpose of the state is to protect the lives, liberty, and property of its citizens. The stated there. They were creating a state, given the legalized use of force, to accomplish a negative function, which is to protect, not to provide, not to control, not to direct, not to teach, Nothing, just except to protect the lives, liberty, and property of its citizens. Now, if a government really were limited to those three things, then it's not a government anymore because it's not governing. So I think that once we change the vocabulary and start talking about the state as a protectorate instead of as a government, then we don't have to worry about uppercase A and lowercase A anymore. We can just talk about something more meaningful in the word itself, to protect or to govern. So uh, that's the short answer to your question. Most of the anarchists, so-called, that, that I run into of late, uh, sometimes refer to themselves as anarcho-capitalists. Yes, I hear that word, too. Yeah, and when they put the word capitalist in there, that tells me right away that they are following the concept which I described uh, secondly, which is they're really describing a protectorate. Mm -hmm. Because a true classic definition of capitalism uh, has to to include the free market. Uh, If it doesn't include that, then it's just another, maybe it's monopoly capitalism or something, but it's not classical capitalism. So... You know, if we just say that, well, if we got rid of armies and just and police and just had our own private little uh, companies to protect us, that doesn't do it in my book. Because um, how would you like to have Blackwater running everything? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> it's a corporation. Well, it's not a government, what, but just as bad. 
What do you uh, think about you know what happened in Iceland? You know the the banks you know didn't open one day and they said all your money's gone and so the people's kind of all rose up and the the old government resigned and and they formed a new government. So uh, it almost seems like uh, an ideal situation for if you had the core of the people who have been trained on this in this red pill conference. You know it'd be you know, say, okay, let's set up a government that is uh, not a government. It's a pr- protectorate. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, when you threw in the element of when the system collapsed, now we're back to a previous question. Is it, do we need that in order to make any change? And some people would say, yes, we have to wait for the old structure to fall so that we can rebuild. So if that is true, then yes, had the people in Finland understood the principles that we're talking about, and they reformed their whole system, they would have definitely made it into a protectorate, but they didn't. They fell into the same trap that every other state has done from the beginning of history. They've overthrown one uh, corrupt system and created a new one built on exactly the same model with new people in it, and in time they will be corrupted also by the system because it's the system itself. That's responsible. It's not the names of the people. It's not the personalities. It's the system itself. If the system says that the purpose of the state is to do everything that the majority wants it to do, then sooner or later, the majority is going to figure out that it can plunder the minority. And away we go again with the traditional evil of democracy. Yeah, that whole thing in Iceland was crazy. I know they have a political party now called the Pirate Party. Because they made a rule in Iceland that you couldn't be involved at all in the government if you had ever even touched government before this whole collapse. If you had run for office and been elected, you can no longer be involved with go- with government at all or politics. Isn't so that- now they have a new party called the Pirate Party. It's just yeah, normal yeah. people. Like, hey, let's call it a Pirate Party. So yeah. they've got that running around now. Yeah, isn't that stupid? I mean, the the assumption that is that everybody in government is no longer qualified to do the right thing. And surely, if if they have never been touched by government, they'll know exactly the right thing to do. No, 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 no. There are just as many crooks out of government as there are in government. You give them a chance to be crooked and and be praised for it, uh, they're going to be crooked and be praised for it. That's That's true. And the other thing about Iceland, too, is that it's not like they're off the hook with paying their debtors back. They did declare bankruptcy and, you know, reshifted their stuff around, but they still owe money to people. Yeah. So they're still, they're still bumming over there. But I, yeah. I think we should take some you know, time, not you, but we've got to find somebody to talk about more because people really like uphold the Iceland situation. It was very cool how it did go down, but well, it's we'd not. Like, we'd, it's, to see the, we'd like to see the bad guys uh, dealt with. That's what. Yeah. Like, that's what drives everybody. Ah, oh, get these dirty guys. Get these crooks out of office. Put them in jail. Okay, anybody that says they're going to put these crooks in jail, I'm voting for him. No matter how big a crook he is himself, I'm voting for him. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, that's how uh, <laughs> Donald Trump got elected. You know, was, lock her up, lock her up. You know, everybody's screaming it. And, and as soon as he gets Drain in, oh. Swamp, lock her up. But honestly, what's going on? Yeah, well, of course, he never intended that in the first place. But anyway, that's the way we go. People are the 99% are not going to make a difference, but they'd have to be educated so that the 1% comes along and starts to say the right thing. Enough of the 99% will say, yeah, I think that makes sense. And they'll support him. A leader, you know, is he can't lead unless he has followers. 
Right. So you have to create the mindset, the educational level, the understanding at the popular level, even though they themselves aren't going to step up to the plate. They're not going to dedicate their lives to it. They're not going to make sacrifices for it in most cases, but they will recognize the truth when they hear it, and they'll support a good man when he comes up for office, and that's our plan. Okay. Okay, good, because that comes back to my original first question. Like, what do you do when you've taken the red pill and people around you haven't? And you're saying that you have to educate these people. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here with this show, Shadow Citizen, is just to kind of talk to people like yourself who are very informed and make it very simple for average people to listen to and maybe think about. So that's what we're doing on our show. And we're glad you're here with us. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure that uh, if people hear you on the radio and they come back a second time, they'll come back again and again because the truth is infectious, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, I remember, in, you know, I'm a lot older than anybody listening probably, but I remember way, way back in the early, very early 1960s. In fact, it started in 1959 when I started to become aware of uh, these issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, first, um, the first good taste I had of this kind of philosophy was, well, I should say the first sip I had of this philosophy was intoxicating to me. I had to get more. I had to learn more. I've never heard anything like this before. Free enterprise, uh, laissez-faire, that the, you know, the government is not necessarily here to help us. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, well, I was different different from everything I'd been taught in school. It was intoxicating. I just had to have have more and more and more. So that's our job is to to provide, I guess, a little wine tasting for everybody. Yeah, I like that idea. Because <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember when I got really involved with all this sort of stuff and reading everything, I was reading crazy. I was nonstop reading. And I read Road to Serfdom, and I was like, this is incredible. Oh, my gosh. And I was giving the book to people to read, and they didn't understand it. And it's true because they had the opposite for liberal and conservative in Road to Serfdom, that book. And yes. it was confusing people. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so that was like my first attempt to try to get people yeah. to stuff. And that didn't work out so good. <laughs> well, it, it, it may have worked out for some. That's yeah. the, you don't yeah. know. It's tricky. Um, the tricky one. Yeah. So um, now we've got like five minutes before, not even a few minutes before we go on our break, halfway break. And so I want you to repeat again the website of the Red Pill Expo and the whole information that you can give us before our break. And then we'll come back after break and we'll dig into some of these topics we should talk about. Okay, thank you. Well, I guess a good place to start on that is our, uh, our commercial. Go ahead. Well, I guess that's the music. That means... Yeah, you keep it. talking, keep talking. Okay. Well, it's redpillexpo.net. That's about the expo. Redpillexpo.net. Okay, our, great. That's it. Okay. Yeah, and we will see everybody next hour.
hope people support American Freedom Radio, and I hope people vote with their dollars and really understand the value of having American Freedom Radio, because that's my family. If you love me at all, Jack Blood, support American Freedom Radio. Like, my family has literally disowned me <laughs> American Freedom Radio. Danny and Don and those guys, those are my actual family. So please, please support these guys because they have all the technology. They have all these great things that they're going to do. But obviously, they can't do it all by themselves. So not only would I like to see you support them, I'd like to see you retweet them and repost them and really get involved and get on the, the bandwagon, so to speak, on doing that do-it-yourself promotion because they're a do-it-yourself radio network, and, uh, and we just need that so much. Did you know there are 3 million edible food plants on Earth and none have the nutritional value of the hemp plant? HempUSA.org offers you hemp protein powder. It does not contain chemicals or THC, is non-GMO, and is 100% gluten-free. Hemp protein powder burns fat, builds muscle, contains 53% protein, and feeds the body the nutrients it needs. Call 888-910-4367 and see what our powder, seeds, and oil can do for you only at HempUSA.org. HempUSA.org introduces three brand new detox formulations of micro plant powder. Brain Fuel for depression, bipolar disorders, and stress. Total Care, anti-cancer agent that cleans the liver and organs and increases memory. Rejuvenate, invigorates and heals the body, mind, and spirit. These products are your alternative to pharmaceuticals. Call 888-910-4367 and like us on Facebook. We ship worldwide only at HempUSA.org. We all know that they're not telling us the truth. So stand up for your rights, demand the real medicine, and your right to use it and grow it. This is Rick Sensen, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. And when we're not invading some sovereign nation or setting it on fire from the air, which is more fun for our Nintendo pilots, then... Then we're usually declaring war on something here at home. Have you ever noticed that about us? We love to declare war on things here in America. Anything we don't like about ourselves, we declare war on it. We don't do anything about it. We just declare war on it. It's the only metaphor, the only metaphor we have in our public discourse for solving problems, declaring war. We have to declare war on everything. We have a war on crime, the war on poverty, the war on litter, the war on cancer, the war on drugs. But you ever notice we got no war on homelessness, huh? No war on homelessness. You know why? There's no money in that problem. No money to be made off of the homeless. If you can find a solution, if you can find a solution to homelessness where the corporate swine and the politicians could steal a couple of million dollars each, you see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty quick. I'll guarantee you that. I will guarantee you that. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio and service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFI wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com 
or volunteer by emailing American Freedom Radio at ymail.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs, and artillery batteries not included. No rules. No rules. No taboo topics. No taboo topics. No fear of doom. No fear of doom. We are. We are. American Freedom Radio. American Freedom Radio. Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, the shadow citizen. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh and Rob Bostel. We're back for our second hour of Shadow Citizen, and we're so glad you hung with us. We have G. Edwin Edward Griffin here today, and he's talking to us about his Red Pill Expo. And it's going to be in Bozeman, Montana, on June 23rd through the 24th. And he's inviting all of you to come down. It's going to cost, I think it's, he told me, $297, but it's a two-day event, and the speakers are out of control good. You've got Cynthia McKinney. You've got the Health Ranger. Um, we've got, who else is on this? I'm at the website right now. It's, it's, it's worth every penny. You've got Robert, how do you say his last name? The, the it's Kiyosaki. Kiyosaki. Yeah, we, that one sounds really interesting. He's the guy that did the um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. Um, then we've got Lord Christopher Mockington. That's incredible that that guy's going to be there. We also have um, um, John B. Wells is going to be there. That will be fun. Um, we've got James Corbett being there. Awesome. And Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Now, how does that fit in, Richard Gage? Well, the... Analogy there is that uh, there's a lot of illusion about what really happened on 9/11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, you know, there's certainly no wide agreement as to what really happened, but there is pretty wide agreement that the official story is an illusion. <laughs> you know, it's it's so clear that so many elements of the official story that we're asked to believe is bogus. That so many things don't line up. So it leaves open the question: Well, okay, if that's the illusion, what is the reality? So Richard Gage is there, and he'll be talking about what he thinks is the reality, and I think most people will agree with him on most of his points. Um, the issue then is, well, why was it done? There's another issue. Got to take these things in steps. Um, but the point is that uh, the reason the 9-11 Truth Movement is on the program is because it is a, a classic example of illusion versus reality. It's, it's clear that the attack on 9-11 was not committed by or even led by these uh, few uh, you know, extremist uh, uh, Muslims hiding out in caves. It, had right. a lot, it was an inside job, had a lot of the technicality of it happening was so complex it had to be almost... Uh, engineered either by active military or retired military or people who were in that field. The, I mean, there's so many elements to it. I mean, just it's not my topic, so I hesitate to wander right, into it. Right. But I, just one thing popped into my mind here. We're asked to believe 
that these buildings came down. Three of them, by the way. Not just two, but three. Most people don't know that. Uh, building seven, they don't know it came down. And no plane ever hit it. But the, anyway, we believed that all these, these huge skyscrapers fell down and, and it was nothing but dust. I mean, telephones, you couldn't find a telephone. You couldn't find a filing cabinet. And nothing was left. No furniture. It was all pulverized and burned and nothing but dust left. And yet, on top of the heap here was a wallet, unburned, and it just happened to be, we are told, belonged to one of the hijackers. And here was an ID in the wallet, sitting on top of this heap. Everything else had been destroyed, but here's this wallet. It survived, and it proved to us that there were uh, Muslim hijackers, you see. Now, mm-hmm. come on, guys. This is so off the wall, and there's so many things like that. It's easy to show that the official story is an illusion. It's not true. And Richard will be talking about at least his version of what he thinks really happened. And that's the reason it's on the program. Good, good, good. Now, um, on the break, Rob was telling us about a previous guest. Rob, you want to jump in and... Sure, I was going, we've had, we've done a couple of shows, so, uh, people that are new to our show, we've had a couple of, uh, 9-11 guests, so we, we had, uh, Tony Zambodi of Architects and Engineers, and he really crunched the numbers for us, and, uh, you know, and said, yeah, there, there just was not enough fuel available to raise the heat high enough to, you know, to warp those beams in order to cause the collapse that was the official NIST story. And then, uh, recently we had Susan Lind hour who and she said the reason for 9-11 was that you know peace was breaking out all over uh and people were liking it you know and they thought we don't really need to be spending as much money on military and wars and so uh she said uh you know that was the reason that 9-11 had to happen was so that the rich corporations that you were talking about uh you know could continue to make uh, huge war profits uh you know off of all the stuff that gets, you know, all the equipment that gets used up in war. So I, I think yeah. this is. Yeah, Susan Lindauer, it was a, a CIA asset. She was basically a spy, and she had been working on um, taking off the sanctions on Iraq when she found out about it. And she found out about it in April of that year. So that was pretty amazing to hear. Yes, it was. So, uh, but let's get back to, you know, some more, uh, you know, we, we talked about Iceland, another, uh, country that went under, I think was Argentina, you know, where their yeah. whole system collapsed also. Mm-hmm. And, uh, do you want to talk about that at all, Mr. Griffin? Well, sure. Um, it's something we talk a lot about in our, uh, our newsletter. By the way, anybody that wants to stay up with what we're, uh, uh, we're covering on a daily basis and what our opinions are. Uh, I'll invite them to sign up for our free newsletter. It's called Need to Know News. So um, you look it up on the Internet. It's needtoknow.news, and uh, it's a free subscription. And we cover a lot of um, stories about Venezuela, mainly because uh, it's news, and we think it's important to uh, the principles that we're talking about here today. It's important to know that... Um, States that are based on the collectivist model, and communism is one of the names we use to describe that model, states that are built on collectivism, whether you call it communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, whatever, uh, they fail. They cannot provide the goods and services for their people, and um, they collapse, and the people wind up 
starving and there's revolution and it's havoc. And that's the reason we carry the, the information about Venezuela, because it, Venezuela is, is falling apart, not because it has bad leaders. It's not because they're just evil people. It's not because they're stupid. It's because the system is based on collectivism. And, uh, and no system can survive forever without that. It's one of the reasons that um, I'm so concerned about what's happening in America, because America started off as being based on the principles of individualism, capitalism, free enterprise, competition, you know. But it's probably about 80 to 100 years ago was pretty well changed. And it's really been a collectivist system for the last, certainly the last 80 years. And I think we've been going on flywheel action for that length of time with a lot of prosperity, a lot of savings, a lot of attitude among people uh, that's built up about, hey, we've got to do this ourselves. We can't be looking for a, ha- a handout. We can't be expecting other people to take care of us. Well, those those old folks have died off and they're being replaced by the young uh, youngsters coming up through the government schools have been teaching them the other point of view, which is, yeah, it's the proper function of government to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. It's the right thing to do and so forth. And so now the United States has become very close to the Venezuelan model. And that concerns me because I think if you want to know what's ahead in America, just read the daily news today of what's going on in Venezuela. So I think that's why it's important to follow that news story. Now, you said Venezuela. Now, Robin mentioned Argentina. Now, Argentina, they did have a a republic, and they had just broken free from some tyrants, some very bad dictatorships situation. Same thing in Chile. Um, And they fell apart. Their currency just blew up. And that was more based on, I think, because they were – they were pegging off of the U.S. dollar, I think. Yes, I'm, I apologize. I didn't. I didn't uh, notice that you said Argentina. It just. I. I think I heard Venezuela. So. <laughs> yeah, because you were fixated on it because it's important. <laughs> Venezuela is really important for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Yeah. So I don't know what to say about Argentina. Um, I'm less familiar with the intricate mechanisms there, but I think most of those. Um, South American countries are very collectivist in nature. Um, some of them are, are more wild with their deficit spending programs than others. And that's, that's usually, you know, the thing that everybody notices is when the money supply collapses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By that I mean the value of the money collapses and therefore nobody can use money anymore for meaningful transactions. So I don't really know what to say about Argentina except I'm sure that in one way or another, it's pretty much the same model that we that we saw in Venezuela. Have you ever uh, looked at uh, you know any of Ellen Brown's work? And she talks about the community banking, and she brings up uh, about how North Dakota has its own central bank, and uh, and and therefore the state is you know is like one of the only states that's in the black. So. I don't know if that's something you like to talk about or uh, I should have asked beforehand. So, No, I'm glad you didn't ask uh, because I would probably have told you that I didn't like to talk about it and you wouldn't have asked. But now yeah. that you've asked, uh, I have to talk about it. And the reason I don't like to talk about it is because what I have to say and my thoughts, um, my thoughts are not popular. Um, 
most people think that, well, look what happened there in North Dakota. It, it worked. So therefore, it's good. Well, uh, just because something works for now doesn't mean it's good. If it's based on principles that we know from historical example are going to deteriorate eventually. In other words, when they created the Federal Reserve System in America, it seemed to work for a long time, didn't it? We had prosperity in America. But the principles of collectivism were built right into it. The principles that the, the state could control the money supply. And therefore, the amount of money and credit becomes a political decision made by politicians who are interested in getting elected. And maybe who can be purchased, you know, behind the scenes or under the table. Whenever you have a monetary system that's based upon political judgment rather than free market judgment, in my view, it may work for now. It may be better than the last system, but it's just a question of time before it will turn out just exactly like the last system did. Do you think because you're saying this, I'm listening to you talking, Mr. Griffin, um, that this is going to be like a continual shift of change. Like you said, this is, it would be better if we did this type of system than it is. If we just, if we just kept kind of rotating different systems, or do you think there's one system that just is the only system? Well, I think there's only one system that is the only system. Yeah. And that is, and that is not a system at all. That's why it's the only system is because it's not a system. In other words, I think the state needs to get out of the business of money creation completely, completely. As long as there's a political influence involved, it's a corrupting influence. So how does the state get out of it? And that doesn't mean the state has no interest in it. Uh, the state, I believe, since its proper function is to protect the lives, liberty and property of its citizens, money comes under the category of property. So therefore, this proper function of the state is to protect the money of its citizens from uh, whatever, from theft. Well, that means the state should um, should have a police force that punishes criminals who steal your money, steal your property. It also should punish banks or any other commercial institution that steals your money or debauches the currency by, by inflating its value. Uh, that's a form of theft. So I think the state should be involved to the extent of making sure that the banks do not corrupt the money. But after that, it's entirely up to the free market to determine its value. And that means that this value will be determined by what backs it. And traditionally, that has always been something of intrinsic value, like gold or silver. Now, if that were the system, if you want to call that a system, it's really a lack of a system because that's what comes into being uh, naturally with or without governments. History has shown us that culturals, uh, the evolution of money has always come before governments got involved. Money is a natural thing that's developed uh, by free people. They exchange things. Uh, they don't have to be told to do so. They figure it out for themselves. And the things they exchange are those things of intrinsic value that are, have value whether you use, use them for money or not, like gold or silver, or in the early days like jars of wheat or cattle. Something that really was valuable even if you didn't use it for money. Under that lack of a system, uh, I think it, that's the kind that I would like to see uh, uh, happen everywhere. And the function of the state then would be to protect that system from politicians. Okay. So how do you feel about Bitcoin? 
Well, okay. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin primarily because it is forcing people to question the value of the present fiat money system. Until Bitcoin came along, no one could imagine that there would be anything even possible other than Federal Reserve notes or yen or, or you know, um, notes issued by the, the French or the German state, uh, the, the British pound and so forth. They couldn't imagine money being anything except something issued by the state. And so Bitcoin has changed all that. And so I, I salute it for that. Also, I, I like it a lot because it's one of its primary functions, or not functions, but its qualities, is that it has a limited supply. Now, that is a, is a teaching uh, fact. When people start looking at the, the uh, relationship between the supply of money and its purchasing power, then we've just accomplished a great educational step. People are beginning to understand how money works, that the supply and the demand do have a relationship to each other. And so I think it's great for that purpose also. I think it's great also because it's causing people to think about the value of having privacy of your own transactions, which many people have never even questioned. They thought, well, of course, the government has to know what I spend my money on. It's just, after all, they, they created the money. It's their money, and they have, to, it's, they have a right to know how I'm using their money, all that kind of stuff. And so now the issue of privacy has come back into the consciousness of a lot of people. I like it for that reason. There are a lot of reasons I like Bitcoin. Uh, but there's one reason I'm a little worried about it, and that is that it is lacking one of the elements that is necessary for a truly uh, effective money. And that is that it, it, it doesn't exist. It has no tangible. It's right. not even a piece of paper. Of course, we can say that about the present money system in most cases because it doesn't exist either. It's a digit in a computer somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, by the way, one of the problems with the current money system. It doesn't exist. It has no intrinsic value. If the computers go down... I mentioned before a scenario where the computers and the power grid might go right. down. Right. I was going to interrupt you and say, well, what about the CME? Yeah, the CME. You can just forget about your, your, uh, your uh, checkbook money and your credit card money. And you can also forget about your Bitcoin money because it's all dependent upon uh, electronics. And if electronics are not functioning, you have no money. And that's one of the reasons the quality of intrinsic value is so important in a truly uh, valuable money system. So I worry about that. Um, there are people trying to solve that problem, and I hope that they do, because if they can solve that one, then I would be more enthusiastic about it. And finally, the last thing I want to say about it is that I think that people should understand when they're looking at the value of Bitcoin skyrocketing, it's going through the ceiling, it has, it, it did hit the, it hit the ceiling once before, then it hit the basement. Now it's in, up in the attic, and it's probably going to hit the basement again. That's the nature of any kind of a, of a speculation. And I use that word advisedly because we have to understand that when you put money into Bitcoin today, your primary motive, I'm guessing, will be to speculate on making money rather than to use it as an ex- a medium of exchange. In other words, you're not planning to buy gasoline, groceries, or pay the rent with it. You're just thinking, well, if I buy some of this stuff now, why, well, a year from now, I'll be rich. 
That's called speculation. And speculations uh, have the tendency to go up and then down and up and then down. And when it's all over, it could be like tulipomania. Uh, Several centuries ago, people went crazy over buying tulips. In Holland, a tulip could be worth thousands of dollars. People were taking out loans on their houses so they could buy tulips. They were selling them to the fools in Europe for outrageous prices, and the prices went up every day, and then the day came when all of a sudden they were worth nothing except what a tulip should be worth, but maybe half a dollar instead of a thousand dollars, and people were wiped out. This could be tulipomania. So I just, uh, I want people to know a little bit about the history of money and speculation and bubbles so that they won't be destroyed by it. In fact, maybe they will, maybe they will be able to make some money. I hope so. I, I'm all for speculation. I've done it a lot in my life. And I am here to tell you that I usually have lost, <laughs> like yeah. everyone else. No one knows when to get out of a speculation. You think, I'll be smart. I'll get out just before the bubble bursts. Uh-uh. Most people won't do that unless you have inside information. So if you want to play the game and speculate and have a little fun, don't bet the family farm on it. Don't put all your savings into it. Have some fun with it. But when it comes to money, I, I don't think that's it's not ready yet for money. Yeah, yeah. I'm halfway there myself. I don't know what to do with it. I have some. People have bought some of the books with Bitcoin, and I trade some of it, but I, I'm not sure what to do with it, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I mean, you can go online, and there's sites that will you can buy stuff, like um, Overstock.com mm-hmm. uses it, which is a big, big deal. Um, I know that you can use um, little gift cards and use it at Whole Foods if you use gift cards. But I'm still not 100% that this is money. As it, like, I, I can understand a gallon of water being used for money, especially like that was what happening in Iraq during the war while we're <laughs> yeah. still there. But they were using a gallon of, of water as money because you could pour it. Like, I'll give you a half gallon. I'll give you. So that was divisible and it had value. You're in the middle of a desert. You know, there's water. Yeah. Well, the water, it has just about all of the uh, qualities of a good money except one, and that is that it does not have high value in small quantity. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're dying of thirst, you, yeah, that's a little different. But in general, and if you're not in the desert, if you're in, uh, in a, uh, a, a rainforest, then it doesn't have much value right. at all. Right. So that's the weakness of water. But it has all the other qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Well, one of my uh, things with, you know, the, what they always say about precious metals, you know, there just isn't enough gold out there in, in order to run the economy. That it's, you know, so, and that's why apparently they started using silver at one point, uh, making coins out of silver, was because the banksters had hoarded all the gold. Uh, and I, I guess I want to kind of go off on this. I get myself in trouble when I do this, but Hitler, uh, was man of the year for for time because he pegged the currency to one hour of labor, didn't he? Or uh, could you talk about that at all? Uh, well, I'd like to talk about the first part. I I don't know whether Hitler pegged it to uh, one hour of labor or not, but it sounds like something that he probably would have tried to do. I mean, that's what collectivists are always trying to do is art is to artificially manipulate the free market tell you what you can charge for your hour of, of labor um, for your own good, of course. Um, so he probably did, but I don't know that. But the other element, I think, is even more important. 
the question that we, the limited supply of gold prevents it from being a reasonable backing for the money supply. It's the biggest lie I've ever heard, and people just believe it because it sounds so true. But it tells me they don't understand the nature of money. The shortness of the supply is a is an asset to money. It's not a it, because it is in short supply is not a weakness. It's a strength of money. And uh, it, in other words, uh, platinum, even shorter supply, could be used as money just as readily as gold or silver or copper or nickel or anything else. It's just a question of how much of it is uh, or what the value is in terms of other goods and services per ounce or per gram or whatever it is. Now, it is true that if you're using something that is very, very rare, such as, uh, uh, let's say, platinum, uh, I'm not so sure that's so rare, actually. I think that also is kind of a manipulated uh, myth. But anyway, let's assume that we're using, oh, uh, let's use uh, unobtainium. (laughs) (laughs) Unobtainium. The name says it all. The name says it all. <laughs> it all. <laughs> <laughs> Let's suppose that our money supply is based on unobtainium. It's very, very hard to get. And if you had uh, a pound of it, um, you'd probably have the whole world supply. Well, in the modern world, unobtainium could be used as money just the same as uh, anything else because it can be digitized. In other words, you could have your unobtainium warehoused as we used to warehouse gold. We used to give the gold to the banks and they would warehouse it and give a receipt. So this is your receipt for one ounce of gold. Now, they could have given you two receipts for a half an ounce of gold or four receipts for a quarter ounce of gold. And now today with digitization possible, they could give you uh, a thousand receipts for one thousandth of a pound of unobtainium or they could issue 10 million receipts for a millionth or whatever it is. You get the idea. Uh, and as long as the unobtainium or the gold or whatever it is is really there, and if you could really go claim your amount, and this gets to be technically impractical with something very rare, but I'll come back to gold right in a moment because it's not that rare. But anyway, so it can be done technically today more easily than ever before, and, this, and the, uh, the uh, more limited the quantity really is not a negative factor at all. In fact, it is a plus. Now, the question is why, if the bankers really have it all, which is another myth, the bankers have a lot of it, but not anywhere near all of it. Most of it is still in the earth and even more, more than you can imagine in the oceans. It's a question of how, how efficient is it getting it out of the ocean water? It's everywhere. It's not even, I don't imagine the amount that we have in actually uh, refined and stacked up in bricks. I'm guessing at this. I, I'll bet it's, I'll bet it's less than one thousandth of one percent of the total supply of gold in the earth. If that. There's more out there than you can possibly imagine. But the myth still serves the purpose of the bankers that don't want you to own gold or not have an interest in it. Now, if, if gold was so worthless, why did the bankers have it all? Of course, they don't have it all. But why, why do you suppose they have a lot of it? It's because they know it is not worthless. They want you not to have it because it's worthless. But they, you've noticed, they hoard the stuff. It's because they're smarter than you are. <laughs> I mean you out there who, who thinks that you know, we don't want gold because, you know, the, the bankers own it all. Ask the question, why do the bankers own it all? 
It's because they know it has intrinsic value. And while the, the purchasing power of all the other currencies of the world are going down, the gold is holding its value, if not going up in value. No, then, you have, then you yeah. have the people that say, yeah, but you know what I need? I need bullets and I need, you know, you'll hear those all the time. I'll, I'll take bullets over gold. You'll hear people say that. Yeah, of course. Well, now they're not talking about uh, a, a normal world of commerce. They're talking about survival. Right. They're talking about absolute caveman survival. And they're right. But it, if you're not living in that society, if you're living where you want to go to work and you've got to buy some gas for your car and you need to get groceries in the grocery store to feed your family and all of that sort of thing, then bullets are not it. You need money. Because you can't eat bullets either. Eat bullets either, yeah. You have to go out and threaten somebody and take their food. So, yeah, we're talking about two different environments. And uh, just because gold doesn't work in one doesn't mean that for you know that it won't work in the other. Well, speaking of the environment, um, we were talking in the previous past hour, we were talking about anarchy with a capital A and the lowercase a. And there definitely has been um, a push to make people think about these horrible environments where you're going to need all these bullets and you're going to need you're going to be in survival mode. I mean, we've got these survival reality TV shows. We've got all sorts of things getting into people's mind that they're going to have to get ready for survival. Um, do you, let's go back to this anarchy thing. So you had said there was obvious reasons why people reject anarchy. Can you tell us more about that this hour? Well, yes. Um, we're back to the, uh, to the definitions of the two uh, major possible definitions of anarchy. Uh, generally, um, when people use the word, they mean no government. And when they mean no government, they mean absolutely no officially recognized uh, state power. Nobody has uh, the legalized use to use force, which is uh, it's kind of a theoretical um, condition. I think you've got to go back to caveman before you can really reckon to to realize that kind of a condition, because the minute society or civilization advances to the point where you start writing laws there has to be some authority to enforce those laws and if you want a system in which there are no laws to live by then you're in a in sort of a caveman type of primitive society no laws and then it's just survival of the fittest you have to defend yourself you have to defend your property defend your family and uh, it's, you know, dog eat dog. It's the law of the jungle. Mm-hmm. And nobody, I don't think, really advocates that. Uh, those who are saying they don't like the government, that's a whole different thing. They're talking about not law. They're not saying they don't like law. They're not saying they don't like the state to protect them, uh, you know, uh, f- from criminals or invaders from another country or anything like that. But what they're saying is they don't like the present Government. They don't like the way it has evolved. They don't like the way that the present state is now meddling in their lives and forcing them to do all the things they don't want to do, which they think are, in many cases, immoral. So we need to define words. And I, I believe that um, the best way to get through this argument is to dump the old words completely and start fresh. Let's get rid of the word anarchy because it has too many definitions. Let's just talk about what are the options. Well, we can live in a system where there is no law, 
which means there is no recognized authority to enforce the law, which means we have, none of us have ever gotten together and hired somebody to protect ourselves. And just imagine that. Supposing you and five other families were living in a, in a area, a little village or something, and you were tired of, of each of you having to stay up all night, uh, you know, walking around the perimeter of your property looking for invaders, and you got tired of that, said, look, I'm going to hire some. Let's all chip in. Let's hire somebody as a security guard, and we will now have this person uh, walk around and look for criminals or make sure nobody's attacking us during the night. So we hire a security guard. Now, the minute we hire that security guard and give him a gun and say, okay, you now have our authority to protect us, we have created a state in, in a sort of a mini way. We have designated authority for lethal force to someone else. Now, we can do that if we want to because we have that authority. We have, nobody would ever complain if a person used lethal force to defend their lives, liberty, or property. That's instinctive. Nobody would complain right. about that. So if we have that authority, we can delegate it to someone else if we want to. But we don't have the authority to tell our neighbor what to teach his children or whether he um, can open up a shop on Sunday. Uh, we don't have the authority to uh, tell him what he can pay for a loaf of bread or what he must pay for somebody to, uh, in, in salaries to work for him. If we don't have that authority, then how can we elect somebody and give them the authority to do these things when we ourselves don't have it to give to him? Right. So, so you get down to the basic understanding of where the authority comes from. It comes from the individual. The individual can use lethal force only negatively, only in the defense of life, liberty, and property. And that, therefore, is the only function that we can delegate to the security guard or call it the state or call it whatever you want to. We delegate authority to use force to some group. And that is the state. That's what we call the state. There's no way to get around the state. It has always existed, and I think it always will. But let's stop calling it government. Let's make sure that the state is called a protectorate so that we know what the limitations of that power are. So when kids go to school and the teacher says, well, what kind of a government do we have? And the kids are tricked into thinking, let's see, how do we want to be governed, da-da-da-da. Let's have the teacher say, what kind of a protectorate do we have? And we can get the kids to start thinking, oh, I see, uh, yeah, it's supposed to protect us. You see, it's a whole orientation of thinking. Once we start thinking about protecting versus governing, then this whole issue of anarchy disappears because it's, it's not even appropriate. It doesn't fit the discussion at all. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, this makes me think, here, I live in Rhode Island, and Rhode Island, we have one of the first bills ever on the planet for geoengineering, uh, we're trying to basically stop people from geoengineering in Rhode Island. Um, it's called H6011. And, um, and you, of course, were in a very awesome movie called What on, what on Earth Are They Spraying? So how does, um, this protectorate idea that you just told us about, how would that fit in with trying to get something like a bill about geoengineering. How would you put those two things together? Because geoengineering is like the whole planet. Well, yes. And so we have two issues there, I think. One yeah. is the theoretical base for uh, government action, or there I, I use the wrong word, the theoretical base for state action. And the other is the practicality of, uh, of applying it. 
uh, let's start, start with the theoretical base. If the function of the state is to defend against life, liberty, and property, uh, it could be argued quite easily, I think, that the geoengineering practices that, that we see today are a threat to our lives. It's poisoning the environment. And indirectly, I suppose you could say it's damaging our property as well. But there's no question that the stuff they're spraying into the air is not healthy. And uh, so it's a threat to our lives. Therefore, the state does have a proper and justified role in taking action if it can, I think. If you follow our principle, of the, you know, the negative defense principle, uh, then it's, it's justified to be active in that field. In fact, it should be. That's why we want uh, the state is to protect us. Now, how can it apply that uh, to geoengineering that comes out of Paris or South America or China? China. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's impossible. So I don't know. I guess there are certain areas when you must say we can't do anything about it. No, some people say that's why we need um, global government. Well, maybe it is why we need a global protectorate. Maybe it is a good argument for a global protectorate. But I would uh, be very careful about talking about global government because that's what these people have in mind. They want to govern us, not to protect us. Mm -hmm. Hey, tell us more about um, what on earth are they spraying? How how was that whole experience for you? Because I love that movie. I showed it the... um the library where I lived, I showed it twice, uh-huh. and I was very interested to see you in there. So what was, <laughs> tell me about your involvement with that. Well, my involvement really was minimal. Um, that was done by, uh, you know, the two filmmakers. They did a great job, uh, and they just came to me. They were interviewing me at, I've forgotten what the topic was, and probably money, Federal Reserve. Yeah. And when it was all over, uh, the camera was still set up. And they said, well, what are you doing nowadays? And I said, well, not much. What are you doing? And they said, well, we're working on this topic of global warming. I'm not global warming, but um, chemtrails. And I said, oh, really? I'm interested in that. Tell me about it. And then, and then they asked me if I had an opinion. And I started to say, yeah, I have an opinion. They said, wait a minute. Let's turn on the camera. And that's where that little statement came from. And after that, then they said, well, we need to raise some money to produce a documentary film. Ah, well, I don't have the money, but I could help you raise the money, says I. And uh, so that's how I became a producer in the show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I helped helped them raise some money. That was my participation in it. But I was very interested in what they were doing, and I wanted to help them. The the program has had international um, play, had a lot of comment. It hasn't stopped geoengineering yet, but I think it has had a lot to do with raising public consciousness of it. Remember earlier we were talking about how important it is to raise public consciousness of these things, even though the public, the 99% isn't going to do much about it. They have to be able to nod their heads and say, yes, yes, when the 1% comes along and says, this is what we need to do. So I think that the film, What in the World Are They Spraying, has gone a long way to raise that public awareness of this issue. So all we need now are some political figures, nationally and internationally, to step forward and say, let's put an end to this chemtrailing. And the public will say, yes, let's do it now. In Rhode Island, our, our representative is Justin Price. And he was he was on the ballot for um, being a Ron Paul delegate. And he he stood up. He said, you know what? I'm in government now. 
because Ron Paul had in, in, inspired him to get involved with government. He goes, I'm going to try to stop this. And he's gotten this bill and it's being passed around. And I think tomorrow they're going to be, is it tomorrow? That it's going to be come up to the, um, you know, where they talk about and discuss it one more time. And mm-hmm. I know all over the world they're watching this because they're trying to figure out what they're going to do where they live, China. Yeah, it's, it's more or less a public statement of intent. It's, it's it can't be enforced, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, try, well, they're trying to they're trying to make it like with fees. If it's found out to have uh, harmed somebody, if you've gotten ill from it, or if it ruined your property, they want to make fees. And that almost isn't that gets. Uh, it's almost like, oh, here's some money. Like these people that are pulling this stuff off, like a couple thousand dollars is not a big deal. Five hundred thousand dollars is not a big deal. A million dollars is probably not a very big deal. So it is, like you said, it's more of a statement. But back to what you said originally, that we got to get that one to three percent of people who want to be leaders who can get this message out to the wider. It's about this education stuff, and I think that that film. Uh, what on what earth are they spraying really did go a very long way to make people aware that this is going on. I myself was a complete denier of it because my father had been a pilot and I always was like, Oh yeah, there's been an airport or airports my whole life and seen these quote unquote chemtrails. And I was like, these people are crazy. That's what comes out of the back of planes. Now I'm just like, Oh my God, they're really messing with the weather. (laughs) You see, that was another crack, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, what? one of the things that, that just brought something to mind since we're free, uh, free uh, flowing ideas right now. Yeah. Uh, I was in um, in Europe uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was Yugoslavia. And the reason I was there is because they, they were publishing uh, the um, that language edition of my book, World Without Cancer, Story of Vitamin B-17. And they wanted the author there doing press conferences. So I needed uh, you know, interpreters and all that sort of thing. But it was a blast experience for me, and I enjoyed it. And at the end, one of the newspaper reporters asked the question, oh, Mr. Griffin, well, what, this is all very interesting. What is your advice? And it sort of hit me. You know, nobody there asked me my advice before <laughs> on a topic like that. And I don't know where it came from, but I've, I've quoted myself many times since. <laughs> I said, well, the first thing is to question authority. And that's the part I'm focusing on right now. Once we learn to question authority and not just blindly accept authority, that's the first crack. If we can question authority on something like healthcare or chemtrails or I don't care what it is and realize that they're lying to us, then all of a sudden we're okay now. We can, we can see that these people are not gods and goddesses. They are humans like everybody else, and they're susceptible to error and corruption. Once we get that idea clearly in our heads, then the other cracks start appearing more more easily. Well, that's, you know, we've, we've drifted away from our uh, politicians being public servants and, and, like you call them, authorities now. And this is what they love calling themselves, are the authorities. So uh, we have to get back to calling them public servants. Uh, servants or well I think we need to call them what they are and what right now they're not public servants they're tyrants now that's controversial you know it's like going into the courtroom and and you're expected to, to call that corrupt judge up there your honor he's not your honor 
He's corrupt. I'm, this is a general statement. What if he's corrupt? They're not all corrupt, of course. But what if you know this is the most corrupt judge on the earth? You're supposed to call him your honor? You see? It's a problem because, yes, you are supposed to call. You better do it, by the way, or you'd be in trouble. But we have to recognize in our minds that, hey, these people are just like everybody else. They can be, they can be crooks. And once we get over that fear of the authority, once we recognize that the, the judge is wearing a black robe, um, and it doesn't mean anything underneath that he's wearing underwear, you know, like everybody else, um, you know, where we go with that, then suddenly you're able to deal with reality a little bit more. Anyway, you, you'll get my drift. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess I, you, we opened the show and you talked about, uh, you know, what's happening on the sun, the sunspots and how we could have another much larger than the Carrington event because, uh, uh, you know, because we're so much more dependent on the electrical grid than we uh, we were when that happened. And we had a, a previous guest on him. I'm, I'm going to tie this to, uh, together, but uh, Ben Davidson, and he also talked, uh, you know, he does a podcast every morning on the solar flares. But he also watches, uh, you know, what, you know, what are they spraying? The geoengineering. And, and he, he said that we're actually going into a solar minimum, that the temperature of the earth isn't warming. It's going to be cooling. And now they've just introduced this bill where they're going to, they said that we're going to start geoengineering. Not that they have been doing it, but that they're going to start spraying stuff to stop the global warming. And then when when the Earth actually is cooling, they'll say, "Oh, look, see, we we did this. It, this we saved you from global warming." Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you heard. I wanted to tie that together to a past guest that you know we've had on twice. Uh, very good. Uh, if you're new to Shadow Citizen, look at some of our archives over at ShadowCitizen.online. And uh, and yeah. Uh, so we're getting toward the end here. Uh, what else would we like? Your main site where you kind of link to everything else is Freedom Force International. Is that it? Well, I have uh, I have a couple of main sites. <laughs> That's one of them. Freedom Force International dot org is our um, think tank site. We have nothing to sell there but ideas. It's all about what do we do about the messes we're talking about? How do we how do we straighten this out? What should our mindset be? What, what do we have better to propose it? You know, we know we're, everybody knows what they don't like, but it's hard to get them to agree on what they want to replace it with. You know, they generally just want to replace it with something pretty much the same as it was, except they want new faces. For the system, they don't worry about. They, they think the system is fine. As long as we get good people, in, you know, in the system, it'll be fine. So, uh, we talk about things like that. Most of our discussion today, I think, would be more relative to what you'll find on uh, the Freedom Force site. Um, we also have a commercial site where we uh, we sell things. We sell books and recordings that uh, provide information to back up these viewpoints. And that's called the Reality Zone. So that's realityzone.com. Uh, we have over a 100 different uh, information products there that... Uh, uh, we highly endorse. We think if, if you just read a couple of those things, you'll be well on your way to understanding really what's going on in the world. And um, while I'm on that topic, and you related it earlier to the issue of global warming, um, back in December of last year, Freedom Force had a conference in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. It was our third um, Congress of Freedom Force. And uh, 
the theme of that Congress was global warming, an inconvenient lie. And we brought together some of the best scientists we could from all over the world. These are professors from universities and, and uh, scientists from all over the world and journalists and analysts. And we put on uh, one heck of a program showing that the global warming theory of man-made global warming was not only wrong, it was not only just an error of interpretation of evidence, but it was a bald-faced, deliberate lie. And so we just confronted the controversy head-on and showed that it was a lie and didn't hesitate to go beyond that to explain why they lied. And of course, I'm sure that your listeners have a pretty good idea of that, because if they can scare everybody into thinking that the planet is going to be destroyed and the future generations, our children and grandchildren are going to live in misery if we don't do something now, then that becomes a pretty good cover, an excuse, a justification, if you will, for them imposing on us carbon taxes, more taxes of all kinds, great restrictions on not only industry, uh, but on our personal lives as well, all the way up and down the line. It becomes an excuse for the transformation of the world into a total collectivist beehive state, which is what they really want. And But they can't just come out and say, well, we want to control every aspect of your lives because we want to and we think it's good for you. They come on and say, well, we want to do this because we want to save you. We want to save the planet. And don't you care about your grandchildren? You know, so they have this beautiful cover to lie. It's all in our program called Global Warming, an Inconvenient Lie. And it's now the whole program is available. If anybody's interested in seeing what these experts have to say, it's available in a DVD album. So if that interests you and you want to see what's behind this, I urge you to come to realityzone.com. And then just look up um, Global Warming, an Inconvenient Lie, and uh, you'll find it there. So I'm glad you got me off on that because it's uh, we just added that to our uh, store about a week ago. So it's brand new. Good, good, good. Now, we are going to start winding down. So you got the redpillexpo.org. We've got freedomforceinternational.com or org. Well, freedomforceinternational.org, and if you don't mind, if you put the um, redpillexpo.net, that would be um, beneficial for us. Oh, .net? Well, I'm looking at .org right now. I'm on the website, but .net is better. Either one works, but uh, if we use net, then we're able to track its source. Oh, okay. Oh, good. I'm going to go to it right now. Look (laughs) at It'll look the same when you get there. Okay, cool. Redpillexpo.net. Okay. Uh Everybody should go there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I am thrilled that you agreed to be on the show with us. I do have a question, and I don't know if it's too too sketchy. I've always wondered what G stands for in G, Edward Griffin. <laughs> what is the G for? <laughs> oh, it's not very exciting. It stands for George. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that because I've always wondered that. Well, you Thank see, my, you. Father, my father was George, and my grandfather was George. When they named... Me, George, it just was too much. They started to call me Edward. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Absolutely. So, um, Rob Osell, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Well, that's one thing we have in common. My middle name is George. So, and <laughs> we had the same sort of thing. We had, uh, uh, three Roberts uh, in the direct neighborhood. And so we got a Rob, a Bob, and a Robert. And I ended up with the Rob. So, uh, but, uh, 
I uh, I guess that we're we're running out of time, so I I don't want to get off onto anything, you know, too far. <laughs> yeah. But I, I uh, go ahead. I was going to say I got a chance to talk to uh, the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chairman, and uh, so I uh, and I guess I, we should do that on a different show. If you come back, we can uh, talk about that. But that was oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, we should probably start winding down. I think we have a few more minutes. Um. Now, Mr. Griffin, moving forward, what is your hope after this Red Pill Expo? What would you hope for people to get out of the whole thing and do? I'm really glad you asked that question because one of the things that I'm sure it's been your experience as well as mine. Most people who have been on the line for a little while trying to bring about change have experienced the uh, the. situation where we have an event we have some great speakers we impart some wonderful information everybody is enthusiastic they're all enlightened raring to go all were revved up and they walk out and in the morning they wake up and well they have to go to work and then they've got the family issues and the first thing you know they're back to where they came from and nothing happens as a result of it so we're, we're determined that that is not going to happen here One of our objectives is to encourage people to form into a coalition, if they wish to, a voluntary coalition. We want them to sign up to our Red Pill app, okay? We've got apps for everything. You've got an app. Well, we'll have one. By the time you get to the Bozeman, we'll have an app. Oh, cool. Yeah, and everybody's got an app. Why can't we have an app? And the idea (laughs) is to continue this process of information and motivation on so that it'll become like our own version of Facebook. Maybe how, how about that for a plan? We want people to network with each other, to get to know each other, to talk to each other, become friends, and to to form into little uh, groups in their local communities, to become active in in the organizations in their communities, go into politics if they will, go to run for the school board, do something, do something, you know, and you need you can't do it alone. You have to network with people. So, to answer your question, we are hoping that this Red Pill Expo will evolve into the creation of a large global network that will bring people together, that 1% that we're talking about. They can work together and fill those voids of leadership all around the world, and it's going to happen. It's not going to be just go to learn about something that somebody said and walk and clap your hands together and walk out and have have a glass of wine and say, boy, that was good, uh, then and forget it. No, we're hoping to build a movement. And so I'm glad you asked the question. Right. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Shadow Citizen this week. And I really want to thank G. Edward Griffin. And now all of us at Shadow Citizen know your real name. And I want (laughs) to thank my co-host, Rob O'Sell. And everybody, thank you so much. This has meant the world to me. And I hope it meant something for you, too. See you next week. Shadow
citizen with Rachel L. McIntosh and Rob O'Sell. News and information you can trust. This is American Freedom Radio. Freedom, freedom, American Freedom Radio. Radio. American Freedom Radio. Nutritious food is real body armor. It builds muscle, burns fat, improves digestion, and feeds the entire body the nutrients it needs. Did you know the U.S. government banned the hemp plant from growing in the United States and classified it as a Schedule One drug to hide it behind the marijuana plant? People have been confused about this plant for over 80 years, and many still don't know what hemp is. So now you know hemp is not marijuana, and marijuana is not hemp. They are different varieties of the same species. Hemp U.S. USA.org wants the world to know these basic facts and to help people understand that hemp protein powder is the best kept health secret you need to know about. Remember, hemp protein powder contains 53% protein, is gluten-free, anti-inflammatory, non-GMO, and is loaded with nutrients. Call 888-910-4367, 888-910-4367, and see what our powder, seeds, and oil can do for you only at HempUSA.org. This is Rick Simpson, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. Quality, value, style, service, selection, convenience, economy, savings, performance, experience, hospitality, low rates, friendly service, name brands, easy terms, affordable prices, money-back guarantee, free installation. Free admission, free appraisal, free alterations, free delivery, free estimates, free home trial, and free parking. No cash, no problem, no kidding. No fuss, no must, no risk, no obligation, no red tape, no down payment, no entry fee, no hidden charges, no purchase necessary, no one will call on you, no payments or interest till September. But limited time only though so act now order today send no money offer good while supplies last two to a customer each item sold separately batteries not included mileage may vary all sales are final allow six weeks for delivery some items not available some assembly required some restrictions may apply so come on in come on in come on in thank you so come on in. Come on in for a free demonstration and a free consultation with our friendly professional staff. Our experienced and knowledgeable sales representatives will help you make a selection that's just right for you and just right for your budget. And say, don't forget to pick up your free gift. A classic, deluxe, custom, designer, luxury, prestige, high-quality, premium, select, gourmet, pocket pencil sharpener. <laughs> Yours for the asking. No purchase necessary. It's our way of saying thank you. And if you act now, we'll include an extra added free complimentary bonus gift, a classic deluxe custom designer luxury prestige, high quality premium select gourmet combination key ring magnifying glass and garden hose in a genuine imitation leather style carrying case with authentic vinyl trim. Yours for the asking, no purchase necessary. It's our way of saying thank you. Actually, it's our way of saying, bend over just a little bit farther. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. 
The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio and service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFR wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com or volunteer by emailing AmericanFreedomRadio at Ymail.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs and artillery batteries not included. No rules. No rules. No taboo topics. No taboo topics. No fear of doom. No fear of doom. We are. We are. American Freedom Radio. American Freedom Radio. 